church and nursery. Our scripture this morning is taken from Exodus 24. Exodus 24, if you're using the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 76. I'm going to read just the first eight verses of this chapter of the Bible. If you have not read the whole thing at this point in our study, then I encourage you to do that at some later time. This morning, we're just going to deal with the first eight verses. Exodus 24. Then he, that being God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Adab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God add his blessing to the reading of his word aloud this morning. If you were to choose from your knowledge of the Bible, your top ten favorite chapters, the chapters you think are most significant, the chapters you think are most meaningful, maybe even the most powerful, you don't have to answer this out loud, but I definitely want you to think about it, what would they be? Genesis 1 is pretty important, tells us how the world was made. Genesis 3 as well, it tells us how things went wrong. Maybe you're thinking of Psalm 23, there's no really more beautiful depiction of our God as shepherd his people in Psalm 23, maybe Isaiah 53, suffering servant, prophesied. You might be thinking of John chapter 3. That's the story of Nicodemus, but it's also host to probably the most famous Bible verse ever, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Luke 2 is pretty sweet, isn't it? Luke 2 and his telling of what we now know to be the Christmas story came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. 
that all the world should be taxed. When we hear those words, it puts us in a spirit of Christmas. John 1 is theologically powerful, memorable, immense. It tells the story of the Messiah's birth from a different angle. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Ephesians 6 is pretty important. It's about spiritual warfare and the battles that we're really up against. It's not flesh and blood. And then, of course, there's Philippians 2, great hymn of humility. The humility of Jesus that, that we, his people, should have as well. And what about Revelation 21? New heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. The description of what God is going to do, what he's going to bring to pass for the age to come, when all things are made new and those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will dwell with God forever Imperfect. Well, one could choose any number of top ten Bible chapters and favorites. And those choices from this congregation would be varied and, and rich. And yet one truth would probably emerge after all the choosing is done. No one would have picked Exodus 24. <laughs> Exodus 24. Says pastor and author Kevin DeYoung is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, one of the most important chapters in the Bible that we almost never think about. Last year on a ministry cohort, one of our exercises took us to Exodus 24. I think most of us, at least after that first reading, we're all left scratching our heads saying, what is going on here? If you have been reading along with the sermon card, and maybe you've already read Exodus 24, you might have a similar question. What is going on here? Well, today's message may sound a little bit more like a Sunday school lesson than a message because it is somewhat complex. It is a bit intricate. We are going to have to walk through it kind of step by step. But let's pray that the Lord would help us to see what's going on in Exodus 24. Father, we submit ourselves to you and your word. We sit under it. We're never above it. We always want to know it and drink it in. We want to receive your truth. And we confess, God, at times as we read your word, its meaning is not always readily apparent. Sometimes it's a bit confusing to us living in this day and age. We don't always know how to make the most of it. But we know by your spirit you can apply it to us. And pray that we would, even this day, have hearts and minds ready to be open and receive your truth for us, life-changing truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the key to understanding this whole text, the first eight verses that we'll deal with um, this morning, but the whole text, is to see it in the context of the larger narrative of Exodus. You wouldn't pick up a storybook and start in the middle and expect to kind of get a gist of what's going on. You'd say to yourself, if you just did that, picked it up in the middle, what is going on here? Who are these people and why are they doing what they're doing? And you, you miss a lot if you don't take it in context. 
You've heard it many times, I'm sure, from this pulpit, but context is hugely important to understanding the Scripture. Anytime we come across something that's a little bit puzzling to us, the best thing to do is to back up. Maybe, maybe a few verses, maybe a chapter, maybe even more than a, a, a few chapters. And that's what we're going to do to get started here in our study of Exodus 24. We're going back to chapter 19. In chapter 19, the covenant between God and his people has been introduced. God initiates this arrangement, right? He says in verses 5 and 6, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the whole earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is what God told Moses to tell the people. This is the initiative that God is taking to begin or introduce a covenant with his people. Now the fact that God initiates this is in itself noteworthy because it tells us about God's intention to be present with, to live in relationship with man. It tells us that God wants to be with us, wants to be with his people. That is how it was in the beginning, right? In the, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God. God walked with them until they sinned, and they were expelled then from God's presence. But in the beginning, God was with man. That's how it's going to be in the end, right? We've read the end of the book. We sing that song by Andrew Peterson, Is He Worthy? One of the lyrics is this, does our God intend to dwell again with us? And the answer is, does. He does. Revelation 21.3 speaks of a blessed eternity where the dwelling place of God is with man. It is God's intention, it is God's desire to be present with, to live in relationship with man. And Exodus 19 is just one of the many examples from, from Exodus and one of many more from the whole of Scripture where God is the one who pursues. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who instigates and gives mercy to those who are undeserving for the simple reason that he loves them. And he wants to bless them. So think of this. The God who has everything and the God who needs nothing has, has compassion toward, enters into a covenant relationship with a poor nation of slaves because he loves them. That's significant. In chapter 19, this covenant God initiates with his people is introduced. And then we have chapters 20 to 23, those are the terms of the covenant. That's what's happening here. The terms of the covenant. The covenant uh, terms are being set forth. They're being explained. So these are the words of God, which translates, we would translate that to Ten Commandments, and the laws and the rules. All of that is so that Israel will know what obedience is supposed to look like. Remember, they're a fledgling nation, and they don't know this stuff, and God is teaching them. This is what it means to live a holy life. This is what it means to live in, in a way that is distinct from everybody else that's living in this world. So the terms of the covenant testify that God has expectations, that he's a God of just expectations, or to put it simply, that he is a holy God and he wants his people who are called by his name to be holy as well. Right? So chapter 19, the covenant is introduced. Chapters 20 to 23, the terms of the covenant are set forth, which brings us to this morning's text in chapter 24, where the covenant is confirmed. 
That's what's happening here. That's the answer to the question, what's going on? In the sequence of events that are leading up to uh, Israel's becoming a holy nation, the first scene of Exodus 24 is the place where the covenant between God and his people is being ratified. So let's walk through this sequence a little bit. It might help if you have your Bibles open or if you want to open them again to Exodus 24 while we do this. Exodus 24. In my Bible, the chapter begins with the word then. That means we're moving on to what's next. It's always nice to take note of a change of setting or a change of pace or a change of direction. In the previous few chapters, God has made known his Ten Commandments, the laws, the rules. Now God says, come up to the Lord. Sometimes difficult to know exactly where events are are taking place and just how many times Moses has gone up and down that mountain. And that's just the truth from the text. It's just not always easy to tell. But that is Moses' role, right? He is the go-between and he is the mediator. And so he goes up and down at God's command. So after hearing from the Lord about the book of the covenant, Moses is apparently down the mountain as implied by God's command, come up. Because if he was already up, God wouldn't have to say, come up. He'd say, hello. Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now, before the 74 men head up the mountain, we go to verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. What Moses had heard from God, he faithfully conveyed to the people. So, what we have here, actually, is Moses preaching. Moses is being a herald of God's truth. He proclaims God's word. Now, that was in keeping not only with what God wanted him to do, but also what the people wanted Moses to do as well. Remember, they were so terrified not long ago by the awesome display of God's power at Sinai. The thunder, the lightning, the earthquake, the sound of the trumpet. All this stuff is going on, the smoke billowing on the mountain. And in the face of that, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. In other words, we're ready to hear from you, Moses. We know you, but God, he's going to kill us if he keeps talking to us. That arrangement that Moses would be the mouthpiece seemed good to the people. And they received the word of God from the lips of of Moses, And they agreed together, answering in one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Next in verse 4, we see that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He wrote them down. It seems like all the years at Pharaoh University are paying off. Uh, you might remember Moses as a sheep herder, right? But don't forget, he was raised in Pharaoh's court. He's a literate man. He's an educated man. He's a smart man. And he can write this stuff down. Now we can make two observations from the course of action that Moses took. Two observations from that fourth verse. The first and most obvious is it tells us something about how we got our Bible. We're often curious about that. This verse testifies to the mosaic authorship of at least a portion of the book of Exodus. Second, this verse is significant because it describes the documentation of the covenant. It is, it is as important then as it is now that, that covenants, formal agreements, are put in writing. 
It's important that, that formal agreements are put in writing. Now, I like to watch Judge Judy. And I realize a lot of you don't like Judge Judy because you think she's mean. And she is mean. And, but I still like to watch Judge Judy. It's probably for the same reason that anybody looks at a car wreck when they, walk, when they see it. But anyway, Judge Judy, Judge Marilyn Millon, Judge whoever, they all say the same thing when there's a dispute between parties. Very frequently, at least, they ask, did you get it in writing? Almost as if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. Well, of course, we want to believe that a handshake and a word is powerful and good, and it ought to be. But the truth is, when you write it down, it has more oomph. It has more of a formal flavor, and that's what Moses is doing here. Writing down the book of the covenant, the terms of the covenant. Why? We're going to get to that in just a second, okay? The very next morning, after he writes down the words, early in the morning, the scripture says, Moses got up and built an altar. Now, we didn't talk about the altar when we studied chapter 20. So if you want to go back to verses 24 and 26 of chapter 20, you can do that. I will read them to you. But God actually gave some instructions about this altar or the building of an altar. He says, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I'll come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Starting here and then in much greater detail in the chapters to come, we'll be looking at some of them next week. We see that God has very specific ideas about how he wants to be worshipped. He expects burnt offerings and peace offerings to be presented to him. He expects any altar erected for the purpose of worship would be simple in nature, an altar of earth. It is not to be built out of cut stones, hewn stones. It is not to be profaned by the use of a tool on it. It's not to have steps leading up to it, lest the worshipers surrounding it see more than they came to see that day. You, you know what that's about, right? This is before the advent of underwear, basically. We're going to get to that later, believe it or not, when we get to Aaron's garments and undergarments. But that's what God is saying. So you read that stuff and you probably wonder, what is the big deal? Why is this in the Bible? What is he talking about? What difference does it make whether it's a natural stone or a hewn stone? What does a tool have to do with anything? And is God approved? Does he really, are people really that offended by somebody accidentally by a wardrobe malfunction. In the case of the first provision, the simplicity of the altar and the prohibition of tools, it seems that God has a concern that his altar be something formed by what he has made. Because if it's not formed by something that he has made, it's going to be formed by something that someone else has made. And if it's formed by something that someone else has made, it could very easily become an object of worship itself. Right? And in the case of the second provision, no steps. You can't walk up to that steps lest someone's nakedness be revealed. It's not that God is approved. The thinking of commentators on this one is that God does not want his worship to have even the slightest resemblance to the highly sexualized rites and rituals of the pagan worship that was going on all around Israel. 
So both of those provisions by God, which at first blush may seem a little silly or almost out of place, actually have for us and drive home a simple but enduring lesson. Beloved, when we gather to worship God, the object of our focus should be, yeah, thank you, Captain Obvious. Yes, thank you, Pastor. I came all the way to hear that. When we gather to worship God, the object of our focus is to be God. Now, that seems so simple, but honestly, how easy is it to sit in worship and not pay attention to God at all? How easy is it to be distracted by so many different things and forget that we have come here, we have drawn near to listen. We have come here to learn. We have come here to forget about ourselves and to give God the praise that is due His name. How easy it is for us to make things complicated, to lose the simplicity of worship. And I think that's what God is trying to preserve. And I think that's the lesson for us, that when we come, we want to set our eyes on the Lord. And we want them to be fixed on the Lord, on things above, not on things Below. We want our worship to be as free from distraction as it possibly could be because God deserves our attention. Amen? God deserves our attention. Moses built a simple altar at the foot of the mountain and erected 12 pillars. The altar represents God's presence. The, the pillars represent all the tribes of Israel. So what we have here is God and Israel all together in the same place. Now this is where the story gets a little messy. Moses sends young men to offer sacrifices on the altar that he has built. They offer two types of sacrifice. Bear with me, because even though this seems like a good amount of detail, it's going to come together in the end. The first was a burnt offering. In this type of offering, the entire animal is cut in pieces, placed on the fire, consumed by fire. Nothing is left, nothing is kept, nothing is eaten. The whole thing is given to God. Before the animal is killed, the priest or the person doing the killing is to lay his hand on the animal's head. The sin of this person or whoever he stood there for, whether it was his family, or a tribe, or a nation, the sin is acknowledged along with the truth that the guilt of that sin deserves death. And then the sin is imparted to the animal, which is killed and dies in their place. The burnt offering represents an obvious, complete, costly sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Atonement is, is a theological term, right? But it, it means to make amends. It means to reconcile. It means to expiate, uh, to extinguish the guilt, the right guilt that is incurred. So that's the first type of offering. The second type of offering is the peace offering. In the peace offering, as it would be developed later in the ceremonial law, the fat belonged to the Lord, but the meat, the meat of the animal was to be eaten. Similar to the burnt offering, the priest or the representative doing the killing would lay his hand on the head of the animal. The just wrath of God, which declares the wages of sin is death, is exacted on the animal in the stead 
of the one performing the sacrifice, and so there can be reconciliation, there can be peace with God because one's sins have been paid for. Theologically, this is known as propitiation. Propitiation, which means appeasing, satisfying. We would understand it as turning aside the wrath of God. Okay? Both the offerings, the burnt offering and the peace offering, speak to the seriousness of sin. It's not a small thing that we sin. It's not a small debt we incur when we sin. And both of them speak to how our sin separates us from a holy God. Moses absolutely did not commission those young men to go and sacrifice and kill animals for the fun of it. He had them go do it for a reason, not for the fun of it, because that would not be fun. And he didn't do it because he thought it would be a nifty team-building opportunity at the foot of Sinai to have a barbecue. He did it because of the sin of the people that needed to be atoned for and the wrath of God that would justly follow them that needed to be satisfied, needed to be set aside. Animals are sacrificed here in the covenant ceremony because sin is serious business and obedience is a matter of life and death. That's a theme that's going to come up again and again in Israel's history. And actually, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Obedience is a matter of life and death. We learn that in the Garden of Eden. And it pushes forward and it remains for us today, beloved. Follow the Lord and know life. Deny the Lord and face death. Here in Exodus 24, a covenant is being cut. A two-sided commitment is being agreed to. An agreement is so serious that it is sealed in blood. Verse 6, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. The altar represents God in this scene, remember. The blood sprinkled on the altar is blood offered to God on behalf of the people. The presence of the blood on the altar means God is accepting it as payment for Israel's sins. Or to put it in language that we are more familiar with, the blood on the altar is the sign that the people's sins are forgiven. Atonement has been made. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Now the next item in this order of worship that Moses, this service that Moses is conducting, involves a reading of the words from God that Moses had written down. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So what's happening here in verse 7 is not the same as what happened in verse 3. Okay, first Moses told the people what God had told them, then he wrote it down, and then as part of the covenant ratification ceremony, he read it to them. These sorts of seeming repetitions have become ammunition for people who espouse what's called a document theory of the compilation of the Old Testament, that it was written by multiple sources and then edited by multiple people at different times, and they put it all together, and that's why you get these repetitions. And this verse 3 and verse 7 really probably the same event. There's a lot of speculation. It takes more faith to believe in the document theory than it takes to believe that sometimes people need to hear things more than once. Do you have any trouble with that? Sometimes we need to hear things more than once, right? It's very simple. First, first Moses told them, and now he's going to read it 
to them. And that's not out of line, and that's, and that's not unduly repetitious. Some scholars liken this repetition to the repetition that we hear in another covenant ceremony. Most of us are very familiar with it. It's called a wedding. Brides and grooms are asked if they will have the other. Will you take such and such, so and so? Will you? And, and, and praise the Lord, in all my experiences, they have always said yes. They have always said, I will. They have always said, I do. Now, this declaration of their intent to have the other, to take the other as husband, as wife, is then followed, usually at least, in a traditional service, by a more lengthy explanation of the commitment that they're about to undertake. And do you promise to love, to honor, to cherish? Do you promise to be faithful in sickness and in health and prosperity University. Do you promise to be true to this one and only this one all the days of your life till death shall part you? These are the terms of the covenant, or we might call them the vows. Okay? So in this form, the wedding ceremony includes both a declaration of intent, I will, and then the taking of vows. And in Exodus 24, verse 3, the Israelites declare their intent. All that the Lord has said we will do. And then verse 7, they make their vows. And they respond this way. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Okay, that's significant. They've said that more than once. But they add this to it. And we will be obedient. Like, yeah, we agree to the terms, and we will be obedient. Observing this response, uh, commentator Philip Riken simply concludes, apparently they were optimists. <laughs> I love that. Alec Montier comments, God knows the people are professing beyond their strength. Yeah, they have all the good intentions. Yes, we'll do it. He writes this also. He says, the same blood which has made peace with God will keep peace with God. As they walk in the way of obedience, the blood is available for a people committed to obey. And as they stumble and fall, so the covenant blood will be available for them. Their sins have been atoned for. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. We read next. Now you might prefer the NIV or the KJV rendering at this point. It sounds a lot more gentle. Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. The visual is a little bit better there than throwing the blood. Um, and it's probably more likely that's what was going on. You think of it, an ancient ritual where you would take a, a piece of hyssop and dip it in the blood and just sort of, it's a symbolic thing as well as a literal thing, apply the blood. The Hebrew there just means to scatter or to strew. But, but if you did have that, that image in your mind of a basin of blood and Moses just pitching it out the way you would old dishwater, that is not what was happening there, okay? Sorry if that makes some of you queasy. The literal and symbolic reality remains. The blood of the sacrifice has been offered to God. The terms of the covenant have been agreed to. The blood of forgiveness, the blood that signifies a life or death seriousness of obedience and satisfies the wrath of God is then applied to the people. And in verse 8, the covenant is ratified. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is a pronouncement, sort of the way that we conclude a wedding. I love this part of a wedding. I now pronounce you husband and wife, married according to the... I, I'm not going to go through all of that. 
I do love that part. It's the pronouncement. It says it's done. It's done. This is the new reality. And here Moses says the same thing. Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's as far as we're going to go into chapter 24 um, this morning. But I want to wrap up our time by considering what this text might have to do with here and now. We understand clearly what it has to do with the there and then, right? But what about here and now? Why would or why should this story in Exodus 24 matter to any of us here in 2019? This story in Exodus teaches us how to have a right relationship with God. If you're here today wondering, how do I have a right relationship with God? This story holds a key for you. We are all like the Israelites. I do hope that as you've come along in the study of Exodus, those Israelites that you might previously have been a bit critical of start to look a little more familiar. As in when we look in the mirror, we see the Israelites. Because we're all alike. All of us humans are alike. That we are created in the image of a holy God, that he invites us to worship him in the way that we conduct our lives and the choices that we make. Uh, but like the Israelites, while we may keep some of God's expectations, and we do, we surely do not keep them all. We cannot and do not keep them all. In fact, we have a bent in us that we're not always proud of. It is a bent that goes towards breaking rules towards resisting authority. And we call this breaking of the rules sin, which is the missing of God's mark. And sin makes us guilty before God, and it separates us from having a meaningful relationship with God. And so what we're learning is that no one can be saved and have a relationship with God and live in God's presence forever based on their good behavior. It can't be done. It can't be earned. Everybody's a sinner. So the question for us today is, how, well, then how do we relate to God? How can we relate to him? How will we be reconciled to him if we can't do it ourselves? The account in Exodus shows us that salvation, that being reconciled to God, that being forgiven by God, that being at peace with God, comes through blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission is a word that means freedom. Remission is a word that means pardon. Without the shedding of blood, there's no freedom. There's no pardon. So if that is the case, this is what the Bible teaches, then for any of us to have forgiveness and a relationship with God, some sort of sacrifice has to be made. Some sort of blood has to be shed for our sins. Does that mean we have to go out back, build some altars of earth, find some sacrificial animals, offer them to the Lord? No. The answer there is no. Yes, the pardon from God requires the shedding of blood, but the Old Testament sacrificial system has been made obsolete. It is no longer necessary, the Scripture teaches, to offer the blood of bulls and goats. And why is that? Because one sacrifice has been for all time. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, was sacrificed on the cross in our stead. 
shedding His blood to atone for our sins. Bearing in Himself the wrath of God that it might not rest on us. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Amen. And we think of the Old Testament often as bloody. The New Testament is bloody too. The New Testament often speaks of the saving work of Jesus in terms of his blood. Romans 3, 24 and 25 speak of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 19 and 24, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood on his cross. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The sacrifices of Exodus 24 anticipate the greater perfect, ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the covenant between God and his people in Exodus 24 anticipates what? What did Jesus say to his disciples at the Last Supper, their Last Supper, when he took that cup? He said, drink it, drink all of it. If you, if you were raised in the King James Version, drink ye all of it. Why? Because this is my blood, blood of a new covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. This blood of Jesus shed on the cross, sprinkled, as it were, on all who would receive his sacrifice by faith. This new and eternal covenant is the assurance of eternal life with God. It's the it's the only way for one to be saved. Does it have relevance for us today? Yes, it's the only way for one to be saved. The only way to heaven is by the blood of Jesus. It is truly, as the hymn writer Jesse Pounds put it, the way of the cross that leads home. It is the way of the cross that leads, and only the way of the cross that leads home. And so the cross must be central in our minds, right? And the blood must be precious to us. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. I shall ne'er get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. Do you know this way? Is this way your way? We come to a passage like that today, this truth that the, that the message of salvation is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And there are really, 
It is either for the believer, if you're already a believer, a cause of celebration. And hear me now, if you are not a believer, if you are yet to be believer, it is an invitation. An invitation to receive by faith the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Who, because he loves you, gave his life for you and shed his blood Second, we're going to sing a concluding song, which is derived from a song written by a guy named Isaac Watts, one of the best Christian hymn writers ever. This isn't one of his famous songs, but it's a beautiful lyric. Not all the blood of beasts on Jesus' altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Let's stand and sing together.